If I've not met you before, I'm, my name is Glenn, Glenn Barnes. I'm the lead pastor here and uh, thrilled to be with you. We have been working our way as a church through the book of Romans off and on for about six months now, and we are in the home stretch. We've got just two more messages. We're going to look at a big chunk of 15 this week and then all of chapter 16 uh, next week, and then we are very uh, excited. After that, we're going to do a study on the life of Solomon, and so um, got great things ahead. So hopefully you received some message notes when you came in this morning and you have a, a Bible close because we are going to be jumping into those things. Um, But I wanted to start by telling you about one of the more famous and really influential uh, sermons in the last 25 years, at least in America, um, took place on a cold and a windy day on this huge open field, uh, not that far away from the University of Tennessee. And on this day in like 2001 or 2003, something like that, 40,000 mostly college students gathered um, out on this open field. Uh, as I said, it was a windy day. The preacher actually stands up and all of his notes blow off into the, the, uh, into the congregation. But he, start, he started that message by telling the story about a phone call that he'd received um, just a couple weeks ago about two people in his church who had been killed in a, an automobile accident um, in Cameroon, West Africa. And I want to read to you a little bit of what the preacher said on that day. He said this. He said, Ruby Ellison was over 80. She was single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura Edwards was a widow, a nurse pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. It says the brakes failed. The car went over the cliff and they were both killed instantly. And then he said, and I ask you, is their story just a sad tragedy? of two older ladies who wasted their lives by being in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. The students were a little unsure how to answer that question. They were kind of hesitant, but a few in the crowd shouted back, no, no, they they didn't waste their lives. And he says, that's right. He said, in fact, that is not a tragedy, but I'll tell you what is. And then he pulled out a page from a travel magazine and he read this. It said, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they spend their time cruising on their 30-foot trawler, playing softball and collecting shells. He continued, this is the American dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only life, And let the last great work before you give an account to your creator be, I collected shells, Lord. Lord, see my shells. He says, that is a tragedy. People today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And he said this, today I am here to plead with you. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. And I'm here to plead with you along those same lines this morning. Don't waste your life. In fact, that sermon was not only influential for the 40,000 or so that were in attendance that day, but it actually came, went on to become the foundation of John Piper's kind of best-selling book called Don't Waste um, Your Life, a book that's influenced uh, millions of people, including myself, uh, because it raises the question about what is most important in life and what are you truly living for? In fact, can I just ask the question, how many celebrities do you need to follow on Instagram or Twitter to be convinced that the American dream of money and fame and comfort and success is not all that it's cracked up to be? 
In fact, why do I say that? Well, listen to what Katy Perry posted not too long ago. Katy Perry posted this. She said, a hundred million digital singles. She sold a hundred million digital singles and I'm still insecure, she said. Comedian Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that that is not the answer. Or how about quarterback Tom Brady? Tom Brady's in the news a little bit today. I will reluctantly admit he's the GOAT. He's the greatest quarterback of all time. Sorry to Joe Montana and my uh, 49er uh, friends. But uh, Tom Brady, he's won so many Super Bowls, I've kind of lost track. Um, But after his fourth Super Bowl, he did this famous um, TV interview on 60 Minutes. If you've ever seen it, you probably remember it. um, Because the interviewer asked him this question. He says, hey, Tom, through all your success, what have you learned about yourself? And Tom Brady gets kind of reflective and he says, I've learned, why do I have four Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something missing? There's something greater out there for me. Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is it. You reached your goal, your dream, your life. Me? He says, I think, God, there's gotta be more than this. What else is there for me? He asks. The interviewer turns it around and says, yeah, what else is there? Brady smiles for a moment and then like he's gonna say something and then he just kind of shakes his head and he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Well, in Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul answers that question, what else is there? And his answer to that question, what else in there in life, not only transformed him, his life, but millions of others since then. And it's allowed, his answer allowed Paul and millions since then to live with a crystal clear purpose and focus that makes literally every day significant. So in fact, as we come to the the second to last uh, message in this long journey um, through Romans, we're going to see that Paul actually pulls the curtain back on his own life a little bit. He gets a little more vulnerable, a little more honest about what he's going through um, in his conversation with uh, with the the Romans. Now, we've said several times uh, that the outline to the book of Romans is quite simple, but pretty significant. The outline is chapters 1 through 11 generally speak of kind of the theological foundation for the gospel. So Paul goes really in-depth about what it means that God loves us so much that he sent his son while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We could be made right with him. All of the foundation of the good news of how we can be in a relationship with God even though we're sinful people. And it's, it's amazing for first 11 chapters. Then he turns the corner into chapter 12 and really it's about what should our response be? If all that stuff about the gospel is true, how does it impact our lives? You may remember he starts by saying, therefore, in view of God's mercy, so in other words, in view of all that stuff, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So he says, you offer your life to to Christ. And then he kind of starts to unpack what that looks like. He talks about love for one another. He talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about um, uh, morality and living a holy and a pure life that looks different than the world around you. He talks about a, a, a humility of submission submission to government, submission uh, to one another. And then you get to chapter 15. And by the way, let me just say a little something about that. That pattern that we see there where we see God's mercy described and then our response is different than what you're gonna see in almost every other religion. Most every other religion does it just the opposite. The idea is this, get your act together, clean up your stuff, follow these rules, obey all this stuff. And if you maybe do it all right, then maybe, just maybe, God will show mercy and show his love to you. And Jesus flips the script on that. 
And Jesus says, I'm going to love you no matter what. And so in response to his love, we dedicate our lives. So it's really different. And, and Paul says, yeah, absolutely, it transforms his life. And one of the things that he says, or the way that it says uh, that it's changed his life, as he talks about it on a personal level, is he gets to the point where he says, because of the gospel, my new number one ambition in life has changed. What's most important to me is completely different. Now it's all about sharing that good news message with as many other people as possible. That's where I'm finding my purpose. Not keeping this message to myself, but sharing it with other people, especially those who've never heard it before. So we're going to jump into our text this morning uh, from Romans 15. It's kind of long. We're not going to cover every single word, but I want you to see some of Paul's personal story. And what we're going to see is three kind of guaranteed ways to make sure you don't waste your life. This is how Paul says he's investing his life and we can learn from it as well. Starting with the first thing that he gets at is be devoted to putting others first. One of the ways that he found meaning in his life was was put others first instead of just living for yourself, specifically by promoting unity and encouragement. Why do I say that? Let's take a look. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 7 goes like this. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring, bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs, talking about the Jewish fathers, that made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. So that first verse, verse seven, about accept one another, is kind of the end of the section that Steve walked us through last week about uh, how we show grace and, 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 you know, acceptance to one another in disputable matters. Um, But it also ties together and kind of introduces really a theme that's very important to the Apostle Paul, not just in Romans, but I think it's almost one of his main themes across his, his, his writing, and that is the unity that comes in following Christ. And especially, he talks about the unity between Jews and Gentiles. He, he talks about that in many of his, le- of his letters, the unity that comes uh, to Jews and Gentiles. So again, we've said many times that the church in Rome was likely made up of a group of Gentile Christians and a group of, of Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians were raised in a monotheistic, one God, obey the law, Old Testament sort of way. And that's how they knew and related to God. The, the, the Greek Christians or the the Gentile Christians were raised with like a kind of anything goes morality and they weren't raised with just one God, but with a whole pantheon of gods. And Paul's deal is under the umbrella of Jesus Christ, both of those things can find a home and find a new direction. Now, the truth is it's always easier to get along with people that are just like you, right? So it would have been easier if Paul would have written two letters to Rome. He would have written one to the first Jewish church of of Rome and a a second one down the street, there's the first Gentile church uh, of Rome. But that's not the gospel way. The gospel way takes people and brings them together under Jesus Christ. 
In fact, uh, Paul addresses this, as I said, in many of his letters. One of the places he says it's super clear is in the book of Ephesians. He says this about Jesus. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So under that umbrella, there's room for, for both. I was thinking about that, and I actually saw just an amazing example of that just this morning. Uh, you probably wouldn't have seen it because it was the early service. I arrived here this morning, and you know how people greet you as you come in the door. There were two men that were standing side by side, both of them happy, both of them kind, both of them getting along well with one another. And I knew in my heart that one was a Giants fan and one was a Dodgers fan. And I just couldn't believe it. I thought the power of the gospel right there on display. But the reality is, history will show you, and the historians have have talked about this a lot, when the church is strong and when the church grows, it's not just one culture of people. It's all people together from different backgrounds and, and, and races and socioeconomic and male and female. In fact, next week in in chapter 16, we're going to see this long list of people that were influential in the Roman church. And and you're going to see some that were slaves and some that are wealthy business owners and and, and some that are men and many that are women and some that are old and some that are young and some that are Greek Greek, and some that are, are Gentile because they all come together under that umbrella. And that's what we want for our church. We want so much for the church to look like our community. We're not just one simple group of people, but we are all God's people following him together and finding unity under that. And so that's one of Paul's messages. And when you see Paul talk about the purpose in his life, one of his purposes is is to preach that gospel that's going to unify both Jews and Greeks. So that's the first thing we see there as he pulls back and tells us about his life. Second thing is he starts to tell us a little bit about kind of his own ambitions and his own schedules. He says uh, uh, he finds meaning by being committed to God's greater story by sharing Christ with others. So Paul recognizes that his life is not just about his own little story. It's about God's greater story. How can he be a part of that? And for him, a big part of it is that he shares the message with other people. And we're going to find meaning and purpose when we do that same kind of thing as well. You know, we spend a lot of time as Christians talking about God's will. You know, and that's a good thing. We want to know what God's will is. Um, But can I just tell you, you really don't need to wonder that much what God's will is. God clearly says it in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. So a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, if Jesus said he's going to come back soon, why has it been 2,000 years? And Peter's point is, he's not being slow, he's just being patient. Why? Because he cares about this promise. And he says this, he's patient. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Sometimes it says there is God's will that none would perish, but everyone would come to repentance. And so God's will is that no one would die apart from him and, and perish. That every single person that you will ever lock eyes with, every person that you ever live next to or go to school with or work next to or is in your family, Every one of those is valuable to God. And his will and the purpose for our life is that we would make him known. That we would not hold back in sharing his goodness with those people. So this is the way that Paul describes it. I'm up to verse 17 now. Romans 15, 17 says, Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. It says, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God, so from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. 
It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. And do you catch that? Paul tells us, this is what's most important in my life. This is my number one ambition to make Christ known, especially in the places that he doesn't, he's not already known. And when he talks about his ambition like that and his life goal, I don't know about you, but sometimes it makes me think, well, what are my ambitions? What are the things that are driving my life? When I wake up in the morning, what are the things that, you know, are, are motivating my day? What are, what are my ambitions? And I was uh, read something or heard something that a, a preacher, J.D. Greer, uh, Pastor J.D. Greer said about this question. He said this, he said, I often ask people what is their ambition or what is their goal in life? And, and he says, I, I hear things like this. I want to be a great doctor or lawyer or business person. Or I want to raise my kids to be productive and happy. Or I just want to do what I love so that I'll never feel like I have to work a day in my life. I want to own my own business so that I can make my own rules. I just want to have a good, make a good living so that I can care about my family or I can take care of my family. And he says, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those answers. Some of them are really good. But then he says this, but I often ask believers what their ambitions have to do with God's agenda. And I usually get blank stares. Now, what I'm about to say may hit a little close for some of us, and I say that because it hits a little close to me. I've been preaching this sermon to myself throughout the week. But when it comes to God's will, most of us are, let's be honest, are pretty narcissistic, right? We want to know how it all fits into me and how I can find more peace and how I can find more fulfillment and I can be more happy and all of those things. And yet I love what the Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright writes. He's talking about the mission of God. And he says this. He says, we ask, how does God fit into the story of my life? He says, that's the bad question. How does God fit into the story of my life? The real question is, where does my life fit into the great story of God's mission? You see, we're not just a person trying to put a little God in our life. We are God's creation made to live for him and to glorify him. And the greatest question is not how can I get a little bit of God in my life, but how can I be a part of what God wants to do in this universe? And that's where Paul says he gets his ultimate purpose in life. And it's making God's mission go forward in sharing the gospel. I saw uh, there's a great story or a great um, example of this, of one of the greatest athletes of the late 19th century. So this is a long time ago. Um, But there was a a great athlete uh, by the name of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd, that's a pretty good name for uh, a great athlete. And he was um, one of the the great cricket players of his day. There's a picture of uh, the handsome C.T. Studd there. And he was from a wealthy family. And he went on to become the, um, the, the, the captain of the famous English cricket side. And yet, like Tom Brady, he just honestly, openly wondered, is there anything more to life than this? And like the Apostle Paul, he didn't want to waste his life. C.T. Studd is uh, going to share a few of his quotes with you, uh, but he said, maybe you've heard this one before. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so he started realizing the stuff I'm not doing for Christ doesn't seem like it's going to last. And so though he was a world famous cricket player at the top of his game, he decides that he's going to chuck it all and he's going to leave it all behind. And he and his wife commit to follow in Hudson Taylor's footsteps and move uh, to China as missionaries. This was his reasoning. He said, some want to live within the sound of the church or the chapel bell. 
I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. So that tells you a little bit about his personality there. So he goes off to, uh, to China and he's very effective in missions there. And, and then he gets the call to India and he goes and there's many converts there. Um, and they could have easily just lived out their life there in India. But he heard about unreached people in the Congo. And so later in life, he and his wife, against medical advice, decide that they're going to go to the Congo to, to, to minister to people there in Africa. And um, that's where he lived out his days. Um, and this was his reasoning. This is the reason I really wanted to tell you about C.T. Studd. I love this quote. He said, let us not glide through the world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. That's a way to approach your day. I'm going to blow the trumpet long and loud today for my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to the point that the devil will be happy to get rid of me when my time uh, comes. And that's kind of the attitude that Paul says. And he says, that's where I find my purpose. That's where, that's where uh, the ultimate meaning is. He's committed to sharing Christ with others. But even more than that, he specifically surrendered his plans and his life to obeying the Great Commission to obeying the Great Commission. Um, the Great Commission is uh, what we often call some of Jesus's final words in Matthew chapter 28. So just before Jesus sends to heaven, he, he says this to some of his gathered disciples. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. They were in Jerusalem and in and around there, but he says, go, leave there, go to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And it's often been said that when it comes to the Great Commission and our command to go into all nations, there's really three things that a Christian can do with that. One, we can go. Two, we can be a part of sending others. Or three, we can disobey it, right? We can either go, we can send or we can disobey Jesus' final commands to his disciples. So Paul's passionate about the Great Commission. He really wants to take the gospel to the nations. So at this point in Paul's life, he's talking a lot about going to Spain. Paul wants to go to Spain because it represented the very end of his known world at that time. And it was a place that no one had gone with the gospel before. And so part of the reason he writes this incredible book of, of Romans is he's building a relationship with this church in Rome so that they can help send him on uh, to Spain one day because he has this passion um, uh, to go. In fact, let's just read some of what he says uh, in verse 23 now. Well, back in Romans 15, verse 23, where he says this. He says, but now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. In other words, he's been to all of the, the places where he is. He says, since I have been long for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. And just as you read those verses, do you catch 
Paul's kind of global vision? Do you catch kind of his passion coming out of there? He says, what I really want to do is I want to go to Spain. And so because I want to go to Spain, I'm going to write a letter explaining the gospel and what it means to the the church in Rome. But I can't go there yet because I'm in Macedonia and oh, I'm in Achaia as well because I'm collecting an offering because there's poverty and suffering back in Jerusalem. So I need to collect this offering and take it back to Jerusalem. And you see that Paul's heart is just to see God's word go all across the world. And it reminds me a little bit of what God throws down to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49. Uh, most of the Old Testament prophets were directed to, uh, primarily to, to God's people, to, to Israel. But occasionally God would say, there's more than that. And Isaiah 49, 6 is one of those places. He says this, he says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. In other words, just giving the message to your own people is not enough. He says, I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And friends, if we were honest about this, I think sometimes the way we think is too small. It's just too small. We get consumed with our life and our story and our stuff in front of us. And we forget that we are designed for more. We are designed to be a part of God's greater story. And the way that that happens is we give our life the way in service to make his message known by word and deed and through love and grace. Jesus says it like this. He says, first my gospel will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. You see, Jesus is coming back, but God says he's not slow. As you count slowness, he's patient because he wants everyone to know all nations everywhere. So the question is great. I I see that God's mission for the whole world is, is really throughout the scripture. You cannot get away. Once you start looking for God's heart for the nations, you can't get away from it as you read scripture. But the question is, so what do I do with this? You know, I would love for all of us just to be just like the Apostle Paul. We would get up out of church and maybe we'd grab a sandwich on the way out, but we'd go home and we'd pack up our stuff and we would go wherever God has called us to go. But let's be realistic. That's not going to happen. And that's not what we're all called to right? Now, I want to be very clear because there are some that are maybe in this room today, maybe watching online, that God is calling you to go. That there is a mission, that there is a place specifically that God has called you. If that is you, do not ignore it. We'd love to talk with you about what it means to, to say, yeah, I'd love to devote my life. And maybe it's, maybe it's, I want to devote my first few years of retirement, or I want to devote my first few years after high school or college. I want to do something to to take that mission. So if that's you, don't ignore that. But the reality is most of us are called to be faithful to the Great Commission right where we live. And so what do we do with this message? How do we take the the message around the world um, right where we're planted? And I want to just wrap up this message by giving you three, I'm sorry, four simple steps uh, how you can join in God's global story. Um, Three just, or four just kind of small adjustments you can make. And the first one is this, adjust your prayers. Just by changing the way that we pray, you can be a part of God's great story. And let me just say it like this. So if God were to answer all of your prayers for the last 30 days, every prayer you've prayed for the last 30 days, God says, yes, I'm gonna answer that prayer. My question is this, how many more people would there be in the kingdom of God 
because of the prayers that you've prayed over the last month? Or have most of your prayers been like most of our prayers are? For my comfort, maybe my healing, maybe for a loved one. And, and those aren't bad. That's okay to bring those things. Maybe we prayed for some traveling mercies or a hedge of protection. I don't even know what a hedge of protection is, but we pray for that. But what would it look like if we recognize that the most valuable thing in this world are the souls of our neighbors and the souls of our coworkers and the people that we go to school with and our family members that have yet to know Christ. And so that changes the way that we pray. And so we're at, we've got names on our list and they've got people that we're reaching out to. And it's amazing what God will do when we start to pray uh, for his work um, in our city, in our lives and around the world. So adjust your prayers. A second thing that we could do is just really simply adjust the size and the scope of your circle. Because like I said, most of us are never going to be missionaries to some foreign country. That's okay. God has called us to California. God has called us to Lodi at this time. That is significant. God is, uh, but here in Lodi and in California, it's amazing. God has brought the nations to us. You know, I, I don't know the exact details on this, but I would venture a pretty solid guess that almost every nation of the world is represented somewhere within 100 miles of where we are right now. And yet while we live in this kind of global space and God's brought so many of the nations here, most of us would, we just kind of confine our activities where we shop, where we eat, our friendships to a pretty small group of people and places and people that think like us and look like us and and are, are like us. They actually say that most immigrants, most people that immigrate to the United States, um, especially first generation immigrants, can go their whole lifetime here without ever being invited into the home or sharing a meal with a, a, a naturalized American citizen. In fact, I was talking to a, a lady in our church who teaches at the uh, adult school, um, the in- English for adults in, in Lodi Unified, and she was telling me about uh, a f- woman from the Philippines. This is a college-trained woman from the Philippines working on getting her, uh, she's a nurse, but working on getting her, her clear credential here to, to nurse, to be a nurse. She's been here like a couple years, and she says she's only met other Filipino families the whole time that she's lived here. I thought God's brought the nations right to us and we can have an impact by just adjusting our circle a little bit, choosing who we sit next to in class a little bit different, maybe choosing where we shop a little bit different, where we eat a little bit different, choosing who we sit next to at the the work party or whatever it is, but to open our eyes and see that God has given us his global mission right here and we can be a part of it. Strike up a conversation at the grocery store or the gym or the coffee shop, however it would be. Just a simple adjustment to the scope of our circle. Third adjustment that we can make is we can adjust our giving. We can adjust the way that we give. There's a great quote. I'm going to all the old missionaries these days, but uh, there's a great quote from one of the fathers of the modern mission uh, movement, William Carey, who said this. He says he's getting ready to go to, uh, to India, and he says, I will go down into the pit, which is probably not the nicest way to put it uh, then, but he said, I will go down in the pit. In other words, I will, you know, I will risk it all, and I will go. He says, I'll go down into the pit, but he says to his church, I need you to hold the rope. For a lot of us, we are called to hold that rope. We are called to hold that rope through our relationships, through our prayers with missionaries, through you know, partnership with people that are going, and some of us by giving significantly to the, the financial resources so that the, the gospel can go around the world. And I'm so thankful for our generous church like that. So the way it works in our church budget, the First Baptist budget, um, we have what we call a um, 
a unified budget. So in other words, when you give, you know, your offering, that goes, some of it goes to the youth ministry and some of it goes to the building and some of it goes to children and some of it goes to mission. Some of it goes, so it kind of all covers all of it. Um, And about 12% of that goes directly to cross-cultural and global missions uh, around the world and some here in our community. Also, uh, that doesn't even take into account all of the uh, outreach kind of things that fall in different places in uh, our church budget. Um, On top of that, we try, not with any, you know, we don't target some certain amount, but it's some years, it's as much as 10%, um, even more, that that this church that you guys give to God's global mission through uh, special fundraisers, off special offerings at Christmas time, we always take a special offering. So the point is that as God has blessed us with so much, we need to turn that around and we need to use it for God's glory. And some of you can make a slight adjustment to say, I'm going to take a little bit more step of faith and see God's work spread like that. So adjust your prayers, adjust your circles, adjust your giving. Last one is we can adjust our services or adjust our service the way that we serve. Because whenever you serve in the name of Jesus, whether that's inside or outside of the church, you are joining your life into God's bigger story by making Christ known to the nations. Now, some of you may say, well, hey, I, you know, I work in the two-year-old class, or I work you know, in, in children's ministry or youth ministry. How is that making a difference in God's a global story? Well, think about this. Some of those little kids that went scurrying out of here to children's church this morning, and we watched them all go there, some of those are going to be world changers. Some of those are going to be missionaries to who knows where. And some of them are going to be leaders in their community. And some of them are going to be leaders in their church, in their home. And how we disciple the next generation is huge for the advancement of the kingdom of God. So when we serve, we're making an impact for generations to come. Some of the high school students that meet here in this room right now on Tuesday night, our high school students meet it here because it's a room that's big enough for them. By the way, that's a place where we need more adults that are interested in, in serving our high school students. Some of those high school students are the best missionaries we've got in this church because they're rubbing shoulders with people all the time, right? And some of them are going to you know, go off to, to college and impact people, or some of them are going to, um, you know, get into a trade. And, and so the way we disciple them is so significant. Anytime you serve, wherever it is, you can be a part of joining your story to God's story, and he can use it for his glory. In fact, I want to show you a little video um, that we received just this week from a young lady who grew up in our church. Um, Jamie Martinez came through children's and youth ministries here at the church and now is serving over in New Zealand. And she talks a little bit about how some of you influenced her life even while she was here. Let's take a look at Jamie's story. My name is Jamie, and I've been living and working in New Zealand as a missionary with YWAM for over four years. My role has looked like working with kids in foster care, serving fostering families, running camps, serving in hospitality, and providing pastoral care to kids and adults. Going to FBC and attending its youth ministries was a huge stepping stone for me in choosing to obey God's call on my life into missions. Though the curriculum was great and I appreciated the solid biblical teaching, it was the intentionality in relationships and investment in who I was as an individual that made a lasting impact. It was people like the Nielsens who treated me like family. Dinners before youth group with small group leaders, Mandy and Donette always making time for long coffee dates. It was the example that the Crosby set of how to do trauma-informed care well. 
as well as the many families who trusted me to look after their kids, giving me the opportunity to pour into the next generation. These people loved me so well and consistently pointed me back to God, reminding me of who he says that I am. This kind of care and support instilled in me a confidence to know that I could do whatever God asked of me, even if it meant moving across the ocean to New Zealand. I love that. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah, give yourself a hand. Every time we serve, whatever, whether it's a child or youth ministry, whatever it is, we're a part of what God is doing in the world. Hey, before we wrap up and take communion, let me just share with you one other uh, simple opportunity that might be uh, something that would, would fit well with you. Uh, we got word from a, a missionary in Malaysia, which is a, a Muslim-majority country, um, that they have so many people there in Malaysia that are wanting to, to grow in their English skills and are looking especially for conversational English. So maybe they know English already, but they just need a place to practice practice it. And since people can't travel there, they set up an online program. He calls it English for Asia. A member of our church, Steve Skelton, has been a part of it um, for a while now. And he says it's just amazing. And they set it up where you commit to one hour a week to have an online conversation with someone in Malaysia. And so in the comfort of your home on Zoom or Face, uh, FaceTime or, or something like that, you can have a, a one hour conversation for, I think it's like an eight week com- commitment. And they give you some things to to, you know, direct the conversation and those kind of things. But it's an opportunity for you to make a difference in what God's doing around the world from the uh, comfort of your home. And I put the, um, the contact information in your uh, message notes if you're interested in that. It's kind of a small organization right now, so it's just an email. You email uh, that uh, globalserviceprojects.net email, um, and they'll give you the training and the information that you need uh, to get started. Like I said, I think it's an eight-week commitment um, at first for one hour um, Um, a week. But as we wrap this up, you know, I can't help but think of the question that Tom Brady asked and didn't know the answer to. He says, I know there's more. I just don't know what it is. Well, as we look at this passage, we see that there's so much more meaning in life when we live beyond ourselves. We're willing to give our lives away in service to Christ for eternal purposes. And all of that really begins with our own relationship with Christ. And so we want to turn now to a time of communion because it's a a great way for us to respond to the gospel, uh, to remember what Christ has done for us. And so uh, on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he gathered together with his disciples in the upper room and they were celebrating the Passover meal. They'd done it many times before. It was a reminder that God was going to be with them, that God was going to deliver them from whatever came their way. And on that night, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and after giving thanks, same thing. This is my blood poured out for you. It's the blood of a new covenant, a new way to be in relationship with him. And so we're going to take a few minutes together as a church to, uh, to, to go through kind of the sacred response uh, to the Lord's Supper that we call it. And let me just say here at First Baptist Church, we celebrate what we call an open communion. Um, open communion means you, just don't, you don't have to be a member of this church. There's some other churches or groups that practice a closed communion. I'm not judging those. I'm just saying that's not how we do it here. Um, you don't have to be a member of this church. But what we do see is the pattern in the New Testament is that it's, it's a Christian person. It's a follower of Jesus that, that takes the Lord's Supper. And I'm sharing that this morning not to push anyone away, but I'm sharing that to invite you in, which is to say that if you have yet to make that commitment to Christ, now is your moment. Now is your time. You can simply say, Jesus, come into my life. I don't understand it all. 
I don't know about all this going to other nations thing. We'll get to that later. But Jesus, I know I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your love. I need your grace. And you just pray and Jesus comes right in. And the very first act could be to take the bread and the cup that reminds you of his love and his sacrifice for you. And so that's an invitation to you. But as a a church family, let's go ahead and um, hopefully you've all received one. If you would open it up and take the bread out. And as I said, Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room. And after breaking the bread and giving thanks, he passes it and he says, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And so let's eat together as the family of God in remembrance of Christ. Well, that's significant in our unity. We're one as as we do that. There's something sacred that happens when we do this together. Um, But as I said, it's also, we speak of our our individual relationship with Christ. And so um, you should also have uh, the, the cup, a little bit of juice there that reminds you of his blood poured out. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and after giving thanks, he shared it with his disciples. He said, this is the blood of a new covenant so that you could be in a right relationship with God through my forgiveness. And so our worship team is going to lead us in a couple songs as we kind of wrap up here. And I invite you anytime that um, you're ready, communion is a great time just to reflect, to confess. We all have stuff that we need to, to, to bring to the Lord. So I would encourage you to take that time. And then when you're ready on your own, you can take uh, that, the cup. And then we invite you to join in the singing as well. So thanks, Ian and Tiffany, for leading us in this one.